Well, hey, welcome to another episode of We Have Such Films to Show You. This is uh, episode 56. We are veering a little away from traditional horror territory towards just a movie that we felt like doing that also is pretty creepy in a way horror films often are when they're any good. Uh, we're talking about David Lynch's Mulholland Drive, 2001 uh, Naomi Watts vehicle. Uh, we have a special guest. I'm, I'm Josh Millard, of course. I'm Yaakov. And, and with us is uh, Tim Hello. Hello. I'm Tim. Tim, would you like to introduce yourself? Hi, hi my name is Tim. I am uh, I am also on this podcast. Right Excellent. Uh, <laughs> Tim, is, Tim is another Metafilter person, so uh, Yakov and I have both known him in a uh, internet sense for uh, many years now. Um, Yakov and Tim, you guys actually like know each other and live in the same general area, uh, if I nope. recall right. No? No? That's okay. not even close. So 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 Tim, you live in Brooklyn, and Yakov, you live, if I remember right, Chicago, right? That's I've, that's I've, right. Okay, okay. Yep. Yeah. yeah. Uh, this is internet friends. That's the thing. So so, <laughs> so I was just saying to Tim before we started recording that like this is the first time I think I've actually had like a conversation with vocal cords with him, despite the fact that we've probably exchanged words many many times over I don't know like ten plus years at this point. Tim, Usually harsh words. Tim and I too. tend to exchange vocal cords through the mail as well. <laughs> <laughs> take his trophies but that's a different hobby so yeah so thanks for coming on the show this is it's, it's okay. nice having the guests and stuff it's a thing uh yeah. long time fan first time caller excellent i like how i i thank and, you and then immediately talked over your attempt to like you know receive that <laughs> graciously it's that's the kind of instincts that make the show work and uh, Tim, it was your suggestion, I think, that we do Mulholland Drive like as a horror movie. That I'm still not entirely convinced it has enough stuff in it to be a horror movie. But uh, what were your thoughts going into this outside of I want to talk about Mulholland Drive? Uh, well, Vulture, a couple of years ago, put up a list of their top... Uh, I believe 100 horror movies since The Shining in 1980. And the number one on their list was Mulholland Drive, which I appreciated just because I really like Mulholland Drive. Um, but seeing that made me try to uh, think about it in a new way, which is always fun. Um, so really, I, I think it's uh, it would be more... Uh, what I'm looking for is to kind of talk about it how it how it uh, fits into that genre, how it doesn't, obviously, in a lot of ways. Um, I, I think that Vulture was probably being a little bit uh, trolly when they did it, uh, but it's also it also prompted a lot of interesting thoughts for me. So uh, here I am. Let's talk the movie. I Go. like it. I like it. I, I I have to admit, once I sat down to actually watch it, I just sort of went into I'm just going to watch Mulholland Drive mode like i so i i have like it's hard to not do that yeah it is it's it's a really good movie i I watched this once previously and that was probably you know 10 years ago you know sometime after it had come out on on video i'm sure um and and i i remember being really sort of struck by it it's like and i'd seen david lynch films before so i wasn't surprised to be struck by it but at the same time you know his films are always a little bit different from each other and i wasn't exactly sure what was going to come out of this one uh, plus, I feel like this one got marketed a little bit more like, oh, well, this is, you know, but this is a movie. It's, it's not necessarily, you know, 
it wasn't marketed so much as like this is a David Lynch movie. You know, it, it had a little bit more to work with trailer wise and and marketing wise that looked like something other than David Lynch we- being weird um, compared to like you know something like Eraserhead, obviously. Or uh, but 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 I watched it. I really enjoyed it, and a lot of it stuck with me. It was interesting to see what I had forgotten in the ensuing ten years because um, I had forgotten a lot of stuff too. But a lot of specific elements of it really really stuck in my brain. So it was nice sitting down and watching it again and and putting it all together again. Yeah, it had been... I haven't seen the full movies uh, in a long time. Um, like, I've seen chunks of it here and there because I'd started up a few times, but, like, I, you know, saw it... I think the first time I saw it was in a college class, like, a year or two after it came out. And then I saw it once, like, while I had, like, a pretty high fever... Uh, which is, you know what, if, if you've never seen this movie with a high fever, I really recommend it because it was, it, it was, it was great. Um, and then, you know, I started up club times and then this is like the, the one time that I've seen like the whole thing start to finish. Um, yeah. And I had forgotten a lot about it and uh, it definitely was more horry than I had was initially remembering it as, but not as much as I thought it would be. Oh, if that makes sense. Not really. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I can buy it. I'm sorry. Uh, yeah, no, it's – so it's uh, – this is also – this is definitely one of those if you haven't seen this, go watch it movies. Oh, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, absolutely. For, for, for any listeners jumping in randomly and recklessly, this is this – is, go watch it. Partly because explaining it is not going to work super well because part of the interesting charm that makes it work so well is how kind of dizzying and dreamlike it is in ways. Um, and also just because it's a really good movie. You should just sit down and watch the goddamn thing. Yeah, um, and then probably you should also, after watching it, read some stuff about it because there's, really, um, there's a lot of really good writing about this movie just because I think it hangs together for like a canonical analysis assist better than a bunch of his other movies. Not necessarily that there's like a canonical, this is what happened in Mulholland Drive, but that it's it's less, there's a, a lot of the writing about this is less, you know, this is what I think happened and more like this is what the movie itself tells you has happened if you pay attention to certain parts of it. Yeah, it's it, it's structurally really, really interesting. It's this, this, I guess we could we could roughly bucket this into the the, the Jacob's Ladder genre, uh, insofar yeah. as there's the the argument at least to be made that you know much of the first two thirds of the film at least uh, is an interpretation in some way by a character who is in a different reality in the final bit of the film. Mm-hmm. Um, so you you've got that sort of like essentially the you can make the dying dream argument, even if it's not necessarily specifically that you want to take from it. Um, and it's interesting that it doesn't just patly declare that to be the case is, is part of why it's a little bit more uh, interesting and subtle of a, of an approach than, I mean, I, I loved Jacob's ladder, but like Jacob's ladder, like kind of finishes it off with what seems like a hammer blow of like, and see, it was just, he was hallucinating in Vietnam. There you go. Done. Um, whereas this doesn't really come down quite, so hard like that right yeah you can't really it, it's hard to just give a definitive like break between when the thing that is possibly the dream and when the thing that is possibly reality uh starts and stops 
uh, as far as you know, like the timeline of the movie goes. Like you know, there's a there's a there's a definite point in the movie where it switches from one to the other, but it's hard to place why and how it does that. Yeah. Yeah, and even if you take that uh, that kind of turning point at about two hours into the movie. Uh, there's still a lot of little bits and pieces in either part that seem like they belong in the other side of yeah. that dividing line, you know? Yeah, no, it's, uh, it's, yeah, yeah. yeah, it's really, it's really, it'd be interesting to sit down and map it out. And I'm sure like that's, I'm super late to the party on that front. Cause like, you know, this is a movie that, you know, 15 years ago and there's a ton of people who are David Lynch fans or just interested in David Lynch's filmmaking or just interested in this particular movie and its narrative structure. So I'm sure there are like extensive rundowns and, and competing diagrams people have put together for it. Uh, but it's the kind of movie that kind of makes you want to sit down and do that afterwards. Like there's this, you know, on the one hand, that's a risky proposition because do you really want to take this film that feels like it's got this amazing sort of interlocking, you know, parallel logics and then sit down and put it down on a paper and find out, oh, it just it just doesn't work, you know. But at the same time, you know, it'd be exciting to see if it does work or see how you can make it work and see where those where those crossover bits are. Um, which I, I guess anybody who's stubbornly refusing to watch the movie first, but wants to know what the hell basically <laughs> goes on in the movie. Uh, you've got a, uh, young aspiring actress named Betty, a uh, blonde woman played by Naomi Watts, who comes to LA essentially, and then meets the traumatized in a car accident, uh, brunette haired, uh, Rita, who is an amnesiac, uh, and also somehow involved in, some bad business in Hollywood. There was a failed att- the movie. Well, her her arc starts off with like a failed attempt on her life. Yeah, so Rita uh, where she is about to be assassinated. We're not sure who she is, but she is about to be assassinated. The, the uh, uh, a car accident foils the assassination attempt, and she like gets up uh, having lost her memory, and then just like wanders into L.A. off of Mulholland Drive. Where she ends up meeting up with Betty, who is newly arrived in town and, and yeah, wants to be an actress. And then they sort of have vaguely uh, hardy boys, I guess Nancy Drew-ish, Nancy Drew-ish. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. adventures uh, together trying to figure out what is going on with Rita's life and who she is and you know what happened before she lost her memory. And, and it goes on like that and it goes in weird ways and... Uh, they fall in love. They fall in love. There, there's, there's this whole slow burning attraction that eventually culminates in them starting up a physical relationship, and and then some weird things happen, and then we basically literally fall through the the rabbit hole or the mysterious box hole, uh, and then come out the other side, and it turns out that bright eyed young Betty, uh, who just moved to town, is actually world weary Diane, who already had moved to town and seems to have failed rather utterly at launching her Hollywood career and that and her- is also like not like a bright eyed young Canadian woman but is in fact like kind of shitty yeah um, and you know like not necessarily like a a particularly like good or healthy person like it's a very distinct switch in the kind of person that she yeah. is and, and and mysterious amnesiac Rita in the meantime turns out to actually be competing actress Camilla with whom Diane had had a relationship but uh, Camilla broke it off and is stooping the uh, director of the film that she's starring in and also maybe another actress um, 
And so Diane's really on the rocks and apparently decides to have Camilla killed, uh, which I guess implicitly oh, like does. Satan from Supernatural. <laughs> is, that, is that who that guy? I, he seemed a little familiar. He's, I couldn't remember. He's Satan in Supernatural. He was uh, the blonde thug in The Big Lebowski, and I think he was in Lost as well. Yeah, he's Jacob in Lost as well. Oh, the uh, the demigod, Mark Pellegrino. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, He's, anyway, yeah. yeah. So, so, so basically, in reality, if you want to take it that way, blonde Diane, played by Naomi Watts, has uh, brunette uh, Camilla, played by uh, Laura Herring, Laura Elena Herring, yeah, uh, killed. And then the first two hours of the film that are about Bright Eyed Betty and Mysterious Rita seem to be some sort of exploration of the mental territory of love and guilt and loss and whatnot and maybe Diane's self-perception of her own coming to LA. It's, it's, it's not a very summarizable film. I mean, like that's, that's right. some broad strokes, but that's, that's basically the, the shape it takes is you get this, you get these characters who come with very little explanation at the start of the film and watch their relationship with each other and with LA and with the mysteries around them. And you really get like two hours of kind of dizzying investment in that. And then there's a big turn where all of a sudden we find out that the characters we were watching didn't really exist. And they seem to mostly be analogs for the actual characters who are two other women with a very different relationship, very different uh, life statuses. And basically every element from the earlier part of the film seems to tie into a much you know, crappier and, and, and darker reality in the, the last bit. Um, so it's a really interesting uh, layering. Yeah, yeah, of that, that that last bit. It's you know, it's it's like a stark contrast because it becomes like this sort of like sad, grindy, quotidian thing where we watch um, Diane like clean a cup in a shitty kitchen, which is like not something we would have seen like in the previous part where she's just you know sort of floating around this beautiful house. Um, and, and yeah, it just sort of like drags everything down into like this sad mundane reality, um, which I thought was like really just like, I, you know, for a while I thought for some reason the movie was divided into halves and then I realized that it wasn't, it's about two hours of like the, the sort of fantasy kind of thing. And then about a half hour of the, the quote unquote real world. And, um, I'm glad because that I don't think an hour and a half of each or like an hour and 15 of each would have worked very well. Yeah. No, no, no. <laughs> the last part would be so dreary. Well, and yeah, it's such a brutal sort of reframing of everything that's come before. So yeah, keeping it relatively short was in a sense a kind of mercy, even if, you know, it could in theory have been restructured to be more half and half. Well, and, and I think because the first part is so, uh, it has so much momentum to it with the, the, the setup and it's intriguing and there's all these characters who are very mysterious and you, uh, you want to follow them along in this Nancy Drew story. Um, and then the second part is so just mind-fuckingly awful. Yeah. One's life is terrible. It really feels more like it's divided half and half. Then it, yeah, it, it leaves a really strong impression. The the last, well, and it's because it's so much of it is sort of payoff on breadcrumbs being laid throughout the first couple hours of the film. I mean, there's it's one of those things where I, I don't want to trivialize it as like, oh, see, it's just like it was that was that and that was that and you were there and you were there. I mean, there's definitely that sort of 
sense of realization of oh this is this is an analog for that thing earlier oh this is who that is kind of this is where that name came from this is where that place came from this is where that moment came from uh but it's really interesting to watch that it's not it, it doesn't feel trite it's just more like oh crap okay this is sort of i'm seeing things rearrange themselves in real time uh, yeah, yeah. Like, I, I think it like it, it wants you to start like doing the like, and you were there, and you were there, sort of like Wizard of Oz thing, but then sort of pulls the rug out from under that too, because some of the stuff kind of matches up, and some of it doesn't. Yeah. Like, um, you know, we're never really given an idea of who Adam Kesher, the director, uh, played by Justin Theroux, is in like the real world, but there's nothing necessarily saying that. Like the things that happened to him in 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 the first part of the movie, there, there's nothing necessarily saying that all of that didn't happen or all of that was made up because we we know so. The only thing we know about him is that he is divorced uh, because ostensibly his wife cheated on him with the pool guy, Billy Ray Cyrus. Uh, Billy, yeah, Billy Ray Cyrus. <laughs> I forgot uh, he was in it. My notes include in all caps. Oh my God, is that Billy Ray Cyrus? <laughs> and by the way, I think. In the credits, I'd have to go back and look. I think he's just listed as Billy Ray Cyrus. I think he's playing himself. No, I th- as I th- a pool man. I, th- I think I th- Gene the pool man or Gene Clean. Yeah, yeah. I, I guess I, I'll, I'd have to go look. I, I didn't. I didn't catch that. I read like maybe a bunch Billy of Ray Cyrus. Uh, maybe his career has gone really down the hole, and now he's working for Gene Clean. That could be too. Yeah. Um. But yeah, so and and part so uh, I think like a big part of like I guess the horry movie aspect of this is that a big part of the dream or I don't know whatever we want to call like the first part of the movie um, is that there is this weird, creepy Hollywood conspiracy uh, that you know is perpetuating that keeps to, to that exists to keep. Betty from getting a role in a movie, um, which is and 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 Betty is a like we we were shown that she is like a fantastic actress. Like she in one of the, like there's a really amazing scene where she goes on on a uh, audition. What do you call it? Yeah. Audition. Yeah, that's it. And it's and it's weird because like everybody is super pleasant and everybody likes her and and even like the creepy guy isn't necessarily like that creepy. Um, <laughs> like they de decreepified like the clearly creepy guy a bit like when he's sort of like he's just like I want to play this close uh which means just like you know like you know uh he wants pressed up against him um but then like she goes with, with it you know there's this there's this really intense scene where um they they just you know play out this role in a way that's well I mean first you see Rita play it out at home, and and Rita's you know an awful actress in it. She's just like she's she's doing like it's like sub table read there's, for her. She's like clearly just reading these lines, unable to act. Yeah, there, there's a bunch um, of interesting stuff I actually. Was, I want to talk yeah. about like acting in general on it. Also, you're getting super robotic. I, I don't know what's going on there. Uh, I, I think uh, he's uh, driving uh, into a tunnel. Oh, why do you do that? Why do you always drive <laughs> through tunnels during the podcast, man? I, you know, it, it, it always comes up at the same time. I have to, you know, get the get the convoy over to. The, I don't know how that song goes. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, yeah. Sorry, the, the the audio stuff threw me. Um, yeah, no, no. It's it's 
it, it, yeah, so so we've got. Uh, I'm trying to pick up your point and run with it since I think I'll be audible making it, but I'm trying to. I feel like I lost the plot on it. Um, yes, no, no, yeah. So, so the whole the whole through line with Betty as this young actress, you know, coming to town and oh, I you know I'm going to succeed. I want to be a star. Well, I really want to be a great actress, but maybe I can be both. Blah 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 blah. Um, you know, she's really painted at this incredibly optimistic and and naive, you know, young person coming to L.A. And so when we get to that scene where she, uh, well, first with a table read she does with with Rita in the the living room, um, she's pretty good in it. Uh, and 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 all of a sudden we're getting this kind of emphatic performance from her that you know we haven't really seen in the character of Betty. She really comes off as really sort of, you know, she comes off as very like Kimmy Schmidt. You know, she she comes off as like this almost I have comically. Not seen that show. Ah, you should watch some Kimmy Schmidt. Uh, the premise of Kimmy Schmidt is, uh, you know, this is a woman who spent 16 years as a mole woman trapped down in a bunker by an apocalyptic nut job. So she comes out and she moves to New York at like I don't know, like 29 or something, uh, as essentially a middle schooler. Um, and you know, this was you know comedy show following 30 Rock, so inflected accordingly. Uh, but anyway, she just has a super high energy, bright eyed, believes in everything sort of thing going. And, and Betty sort of got the same feeling. Like, it's like if this film had not been a David Lynch film that went in very different directions, people would have been harsh about, you know, the acting job Naomi Watts did in the first, you know, 40 minutes of the film because she's very specifically acting towards this sort of not very good actress being a little bit oblivious and, and, and weird. Uh, so, so then when we get the table read in the kitchen with Rita, where Rita's reading so badly, and uh, and and Betty is acting, she actually we see a little bit of acting for the first time, and it's uh, and it's it's a uh, good. It's like, oh wait, this character can act. And then we get that audition scene where she's nervous and excited, and everybody's super nice, and and then she acts the fuck out of it in a totally different way, and it's like, oh wait, no, this. She can really, really, really act. There's like yeah, the 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 when when she's like doing the read with Rita, there it's you know the movie is about like a a a young woman, like very young, like probably a teenager, I think, because they mention like the relationship is you know the police will come. Although I don't know if that the the thing where she says you know if I tell people you'll you'll be arrested, I don't know. If that means that just that she is that young, or that she would tell them that he, you know, like tried to assault her or something, but like clearly the relationship is between like a, a much older man uh, and, and and a young woman, and the way that Rita and Betty do it, they do it, you know, pretty much straight, where you know they're you know the guy has like come in and she doesn't want him there, and she's like you know get out and, and I hate you, um, yeah. and then. Um, when she does it like with the guy during the audition it's this like incredibly intimate thing where she is like you know whispering these things into his ear while they're like making out and groping each other um and the thing is like the the all of the acting in the like the 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 first part of the movie the the acting that's supposed to be the movie taking place you know like rita and betty talking it's got a super weird inflection it's a very like lynchian sort of thing where i guess if you've ever seen 
Twin Peaks or, you know, a bunch of his other movies, there's this really strange, like, artificial inflection to everything that's 100% on purpose. Yeah. Um, and then when she's doing that part where she's acting in the audition, it's it's a completely different thing. It's, it's done almost, like, totally – I don't know if straight is the right answer – because it's clearly like melodramatic, but it's done as like straight melodrama. It doesn't have like this like Lynchian edge to it, which you know I think both takes us out of the movie and then plunges us into a different movie because you really do forget when they're in the middle of this that you're not watching the movie that they're auditioning for. Yeah, and 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 seeing such a change in Betty is really really effective. Um, right, and that scene in particular. I mean, that's it's very much a. Uh, surprising everybody in the scene with how good the audition performance is, but it's also kind of surprising the viewer that Betty has this capacity and depth for like sort of raw menace and sexual energy that like you don't get up to that point in the film at all. Uh, well, and it also uh, it's also surprising as the viewer because you know you've been watching for you know forty minutes or whatever, and it has been all that kind of arch. Lynchian uh, inflection to all the dialogue where everybody just sounds like uh, they're going to say gee golly in every other sentence. <laughs> and uh, all of a sudden uh, she plays the scene and it's, it just looks like Naomi Watts is a really good actress. And yeah. you're yeah. like, well, why is she suddenly performing in a totally different way? And it really sets you up for the, that last half hour of the movie. Yeah. Yeah. Cause it, yeah. It brings it back around. Oh. Um, you get you get her once again like acting differently, but this time it's not like her doing uh, a scene or like a, an audition or anything. It's she's actively because she's like just a fundamentally different person than we've seen in her analog uh, in the first couple hours of the film. And it's yeah, the fact that it's sort of like that change would have been effective either way, but thematically the way the film plays with the idea of her performance, and then we get that totally different performance. It's not even quote unquote her. Uh, it's such it's such a nice sort of like bam bam bam. You know, it's it's really set up and knocked down in a super effective way. Uh, that's way better than it would be if it was even just like oh, but turns out this is someone else and let's have a different kind of performance now as just a flipping a switch out of the blue thing. But you talked about Yakov. You mentioned the uh, um, sort of the cadence thing. One thing that I sort of noted when I was. Uh, watching it early on, like there's th- this sort of recurs throughout, and this this sort of is partly the uh, weird Lynchian thing. But there's there's some scenes that like really read like literally something out of a stage play. Uh, the the scene that oh, first- and the they yeah, and and the lighting as well. Oh, I, yeah, yeah, the lighting becomes stage lighting in a number of like scenes in this. Yeah, like they just absolutely go for okay. Well, now let's bring up this spot. Now let's fade down the background lights, etc. In a way that's not remotely naturalistic. It's it's less surprising in a Lynch film than it would be in you know a film by someone who wasn't an established sort of specific Weirdo. kind of aesthetic. Yeah, uh, but still, it's like yeah, it's it's very uh, it's very much like that. And, and and so there's this the scene in Winkies, the the early scene in Winkies with uh, the so, two guys talking. The, it, so that scene is a dream within a dream, essentially. Yeah. Because what? I mean, I mean, it's implied to where yeah, I, you know, you can't say it for a fact, but like within Diane's dream of being Betty, Rita goes to sleep and then wakes up 
goes to sleep, then this scene plays out, and then she wakes up. So by all, like, cinematic implication, this is a dream that takes place inside of, like, a dream or dying fantasy, or, you know, it's it's twice as removed, yeah. but then it's also, which also sort of makes it loop around, you know? And it's also, it's it, it's a dream, it, it it's arguably Rita's dream within Betty's dream about a man describing a dream he had. Right. <laughs> so it's like, let's go all the way down. Um, but the, but what I was going to say is the dialogue in that scene, the dialogue between those two guys is so mannered. It's so uh, let me explain it to you. Okay. Yeah. Explain, it, it feels – it really feels like something out of a, a stage play and a stage play that's not trying to be naturalistic. You know, It could almost be something out of like a one-man play but we're throwing in some other characters because we're on screen. Um, and the delivery is so – it's so interesting – to have it so deliberate in a film that also uses acting as a major theme for the characters to see like like that had to be that had to be a very deliberate choice obviously i don't think right. lynch really does anything non deliberately but the idea of rolling in i don't know i mean did you get that like specifically sort of stage feel from that it scene it was definitely like really different and the way that emotions set over people where they go from where he goes like from being just sort of normal to descriptive to like you know sort of amused by his description to being like genuinely scared it definitely feel it felt like you know it, it, like the emotional switch in it was was different from the rest of the movie and like the sort of i guess clarity of the acting where the the only th- thing that we were like watching this character describe was what he described there was no like subtext to it at all it was just what you see is what you get with the description which which was somewhat different than like you know the the rest of the movie where even though like it had the inflection like everybody had like you know motives and and so on and this one it was just yeah like it was it was just this scene was meant to play out entirely by itself yeah um, we, like you weren't supposed to wonder who's this guy, who's this other guy. You didn't like it. It didn't really set you up for needing to wonder who these people are, which I think is really feeds into like the sort of like dream logic part of the movie where like in a dream you often like will interact with, you know, people and things not knowing what they are, but also not, not knowing what they are, where you have a familiarity with the strange thing. And that's what this scene felt like, you know, it was, yeah, yeah. Uh, you mentioned the uh, theatricality. I wrote down uh, that the first uh, hour or so of this movie is so exposition heavy, which I'd never noticed before. But like every single scene, people sit down and then explain the situation that they are both in. Uh, when Adam, oh, yeah. uh, jumping ahead just a little bit, when when uh, Adam Kesher is meeting with uh, Angela Battlementi and the mob guys, there's a the, there's a line that says you're in the process of casting your lead actress. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? I just saw um, uh, yesterday. Uh, I saw Deadpool, which is great, and I very heartily recommend it. But there is like a scene in a bar where he's just like, "Hey, wait! This guy's been waiting for you. You should go talk to him. Maybe it'll further the plot along." And the whole movie <laughs> is like that. And yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I would like to see that at some point. Uh, I've been happy. But to yeah, hear so that, oh yeah, things. I totally forgot that the 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 older guy. I mean, not the older guy. The like larger mobster, the one that um, spits out the spits the out the, guy, the, yeah. the. That's Angela Battlemendi, right? Yeah, that's yeah, him. He's the composer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
He's been like he he and Lynch have been working together. Like he and Lynch worked together, like Sergio Leone and um, what's his face? The the, the dad from Houseu. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Thank you. Um, <laughs> uh, Morricone. Yes. Morricone. Yeah, that's right. Um, yeah, and uh, there was something. Was that was his character Bellamente's character supposed to be like remind you of um, Frank Booth a bit um, from Blue Velvet? I don't know. I mean, Booth had a lot of weird energy, and 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 Bottolamenti's, uh what Castigliani or whatever yeah, brother yeah, was the, very very sort of like just a, a constant menacing glare. Like I, I so I, did, I didn't really get that feeling. I think it's kind of hard to bring Booth out without sort of bringing Booth out. Uh, Booth talks a lot. Yeah, that yeah, yeah. I think he he only has a couple of words in the whole movie. Yeah, he, he says, says like napkin, napkin, and, and, napkin. So, and shit. I think. And yeah. this is the girl. I think he says that. A few oh, times. that's right. Yeah. yeah, he says that a bunch of times. Yeah, and then he shows up again uh, when Camilla Rhodes actually shows up on set and just leers menacingly a little bit. Yeah, yeah. Right. Same thing. And then he's in the the he's at the uh, the cocktail party. He's just some guy sitting there. Oh yeah, just staring at her. Yeah, yeah, and we're yeah we're not quite sure who who he is. What did his brother yell? Because you know at I one point like either. everything's going to shit. Like his brother like just yells something, and I cannot figure out what it was. Yeah, and it had the caption. I, I was I was so I was so caught up in it that I forgot to go back and look. Uh, yeah. But yeah, I, I tried to make a note. I was like, I have no idea what Dan Hadea just shouted. Also, I fucking love Dan Hadea. He's what, oh is, my God. what else is he in it? Because I he looks like. Tony Shalhoub a bit, but I was like, it's not Tony Shalhoub, so I'm not sure. What else was he in? He's been in a ton of stuff, is the thing, and I'm having trouble remembering like specific, like more notable roles. But he's been like in so much stuff. Uh, he's a total that guy. It's easy to throw him in something mobby. It's easy to throw him in something like as a, a you know detective type character. Um, kind of Honestly, all- the only the only role I can think of off the top of my head is that he's Carla's uh, ex-husband in Cheers. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> <laughs> I'll glance through uh, his... I mean, yeah, he was in Clueless. He was in To Die For. He was in The Usual Suspects. He was in Maverick. He, like his, He's got a giant fucking like okay. 137 yeah. roles. So he's been in a bunch of shit, and I'm sure he's had like starring roles that I'd be like, oh, right, 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 yeah. But he's just... He's great, and he's got these eyebrows, and there's this extreme close-up of his eyebrows and his eyes at one point during that scene where uh, they're struggling to work out the this-is-the-girl angle. And it's just like the entire screen... I, I wish I had seen this in the theater so I could have seen an entire movie theater size yeah. screen with nothing but Dan Hedaya's eyebrows in them because it would have been amazing. He was in Blood yeah, Simple. I he was in... Uh, really regret not yeah. seeing this in the theater. But I mean, like I had just gotten into David Lynch when this came out, so yeah. I'm not even sure I knew it existed yet. Um, this was the, say, this was the first. Guy, this was the first Lynch film that I saw. Oh yeah. Uh, aside from oh, the wow. Straight Story, which I actually watched with my parents when I was in high school because we didn't know any better. <laughs> uh, but if you've seen the Straight Story, uh, I mean, it's it's a Disney produced G rated film directed by David Lynch. Uh, if you don't. If you aren't familiar with Lynch's work at all, it watches completely straight. Uh, and it's only until you've kind of picked up on a lot of the weird little things that he does repeatedly uh, and you go back and watch it. It's a really fucking weird movie. I love it. <laughs> I um, You know, the first – I think the first David Lynch movie I ever saw was Eraserhead. I um, 
I'd found out about it like on the internet or, or, or through something like the early internet, like the before like I, you can download a movie internet, so like probably around 2000. Um, and I ended up buying on eBay for like $45 a video tape. Um, it was a videotape that had uh, The Alphabet, which was one of his early short films, yeah. The Grandmother, which is another one of his early short films, and the Japanese laser disc, uh, a Japanese laser disc rip of Eraserhead with like Japanese subtitles. And I, you know what? I paid $45 for this as like a 16 year old, and I did not feel even remotely ripped off. That sounds yeah, like that, money well spent. Yeah, that's, yeah. That's, that's probably the best, you know, case scenario for spending $45 on a, a sketchy bootleg VHS tape. Uh, like, what if you did that for like a copy of, I don't know, you know, one of the first X-Men movies. That'd be like the saddest thing. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, that's great. I, I don't remember when I first saw David Lynch. Uh, because like, you know, it's like I've, I, I've watched Twin Peaks like two or three times now. Um, really? I yeah. cannot do that I, second season. I, I like it. You know, the second season, it's it's got its rough spots, but I still, I'm kind of on board. Like I always get sort of increasingly like uh you know when i get into the middle of it but but there's there's still a lot to like and i'm able to like two-thirds of the second season is just james hurley playing (laughs) guitar and offensive it turns out it's not actually that much but it's still really fucking like i uh that the whole the whole james side plot in the second season where he goes off and has that weird soap opera interaction for a, a few episodes with the lady in the house and her abusive husband or whatever uh oh, it just it failed so badly to be good tv <laughs> like beyond the way twin peaks sometimes failed in interesting ways it was just bad but even that I can kind of appreciate because like there, there keeps being soap opera shots on TV in, in scenes earlier on and, and probably later on in the, the series too. And then David Lynch just straight up put a, a, a few episodes of a soap opera on the show instead of on the TV in the show. And like that's, that's kind of a ballsy fucking structural move that I can really appreciate even if I didn't actually like the, you know, the product that resulted. Uh, just, just, just for the, the, the fuckery move of it. You know, I could put up with any number of episodes of James doing stupid shit in the countryside. I just, when Ben Horn starts pretending he's a civil war general and they spend <laughs> like 20 minutes an episode reenacting battles with little, oh God, uh, I uh, about that. Stuff, that was kind of tedious. God, it lasts forever and it just feels so pointless. Yeah. I completely blocked that out of my memory. Oh, okay, you know, it, uh, to bring this back around, so so Twin Peaks big. <laughs> let, 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 Why? Let, let's pretend that I'm successfully bringing something around. That's just a meaningless phrase I say, which means I'm going to talk some more. Uh, <laughs> welcome to the podcast. Uh, no, so so I watched a bunch of Twin Peaks, and that's kind of like my definitive David Lynch, uh, for better or for worse. But really, I guess my initial David Lynch experience was Dune. Uh, ah. and it was before I'd ever read the book. I didn't know anything about you know the, Herbert's work. I didn't know anything about David Lynch. I just knew I saw this movie and I thought it was fucking weird and great. Like I really, really, it left a big impression on me. And I think it's interesting because it's it's less Lynchian in a sense than most of his work. You know, there's not as much stamp of David Lynch over the the writing and the structure because he's taken someone else's you know already very strongly characterized and, and plotted story. 
but there's so much of his like visual sensibility and his directorial weirdness in there nonetheless that seeing all of his other stuff afterwards, you know, it always it's a little bit of my lens into it is sort of seeing how he dealt with stuff. And there's so much whispering in, in Dune, you know, as as a way to handle the the voiceover that's like really, really there as sort of internal monologue in the book. Uh, that the the audition scene we were talking about where Naomi Watts just kills it as this like very, very sort of menacing and sexual uh, party in this interaction. Like there's a bunch of whispering there and there's whispering throughout the film elsewhere too. And it sort of kept making me think of like, you know, father, the sleep has awakened, you know? Uh, yeah. Anyway, I guess that's, that's, so that's my capsule Lynch background, Twin Peaks and Dune. But uh, but yes. <laughs> Let what me movie were we doing? doing? What is Red. Blue Velvet? So, <laughs> okay, so here's the thing. There, this is the thing I think is interesting about this film. Uh, the way Lynch really has kind of like there are his small town works, right? I mean, Blue Velvet is very much the weird dark heart underneath. Uh, bucolic is that the right word? Uh, mm-hmm. Small town. Yeah. Uh, not quite pastoral, but you know, the, the sort of like I, this this fifties idyllic nuclear family, nice suburban uh, area. Everything's nice. Everybody's nice. The sun is shining, etc. You know, this post war. There's weird sort of fake birds in the trees. Oh, man. <laughs> yeah, you know, so fake. Um, so you know, you, you've got that with Blue Velvet, and then you find the dark under it, heart under it. You've got that with Twin Peaks. You know, with its own take of like, yes, but what's going on underneath? Um, you know, so that's an establishing thing. And, and Betty feels like she's a character from one of those David Lynch films, but then it's a it's a very city film. Like it's it, it's much right. more. And so crossing those two over is kind of interesting to me. But yeah, but it's weird. Like how many characters show up that could be like from that kind of milieu? Like uh, Wally. Wait, was it Wally? Because Woody Katz was the actor. I think Wally was the guy that had her in the audition. That the casting yeah. lady was like, he'll never get this movie yeah. made. Like, that guy was very, like, you know, in, in that sort of way. Like, he didn't come off as very, like, Los Angelesy at all, as, like, many of the other characters do. Yeah. Um, I think there was a couple of others. Like, Coco, even a little bit. Like, she was... You know, definitely not like small town looking, um, but she she definitely felt like she could have been like a character in Twin Peaks or Blue Velvet. Yeah. Yeah. No. I. Yeah. I. There was a. Nah. Winkies. Winkies could very be. Could very be. Winkies, Winkies was supposed to be Denny's in the script. I mean, uh, I, I exactly like Denny's. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I read. I read the script at one point, or like I read the the that or I read a bunch of the script because I was trying to figure out some stuff because of the last time I watched the movie it didn't have captioning I think so I was just like trying to figure out what people were saying um, and yeah in the script it's referred to as Denny's everywhere but I guess they couldn't get the rights to yeah. it. <laughs> I like I like it better as Winkies. I like it being. Why would Denny's off. want their name on that? Fight of cosmic horror. Do you know that there's a strange goblin man that lives behind every Denny's? <laughs> Senior discount. You can get scared to death for thirty percent off on Wednesdays. Um, 
Well, I was going to say, like Winkies, we've got, you know, once again, we're at a diner. In fact, we're at a diner and there's someone named Diane involved and she's a waitress. So she's probably pretty experienced on, you know, the subject of things like coffee and cherry pie. Eh? Yeah. So there's back to Twin Peaks. But but also like Winkies as sort of a sort of fake corporate L.A. analog for a small town diner like the actual diner in – in, in Twin Peaks, you know, again, there's a sort of like, let's take his, let's take Lynch's like, you know, weird small town idyllic and then let's smear a bunch of LA all over it. Yeah. Make it a chain. And, uh, um, so you mentioned, uh, yeah, there was a waitress named Diane. There's a bunch of, um, like doppelgangers for Naomi, uh, for Naomi Watts, essentially, like whichever character she's playing, there's like a bunch of women like that. Yeah. There's Diane, uh, there's the prostitute, there's um, the dream Camilla, which, uh, who, I don't, I don't think she ever gets a name in like the, the real world. Um, but the, 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 this is the girl, girl. Girl. Yeah, yeah. Like yeah. they're all very, very Betty. Yeah, even um, Rita when she has the the wig that the wig Betty sets yeah, her up yeah. with. Yeah, like 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 half the female characters in the film are essentially one or another, you know, perspective take on Naomi Watts's Betty slash Diane character. Uh, which is it's again it's like yeah, I want to I want to I want to pull out a fucking whiteboard on this thing. I, I really want. I mean, like, they could all be. The, there's no reason. Every single one of those characters couldn't be oh. like a girl that had just moved down from uh, Moosehead, Ontario, or yeah. wherever they 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 could all they, they, yeah. The, what wait what? Deep River, Ontario. Yeah, Deep River, Ontario. That's it. Yeah, and you know they all could have just been the same girl in like a bunch of different takes, just as as different as Diane is from Betty. It could be you know Betty to the 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 prostitute or, 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 or Betty to, you know, dream Camilla. Yeah. I wanted to, I wanted to, so I'm going to make an effort to talk about, uh, explicit horror stuff for a second, just in the spirit of the exercise. Uh, there's a thing that happens repeatedly throughout the film, uh, that is some of the most typically horror film like sequences, I guess I would say, um, where there, there's, there's the, the slow creeping forward, the slow creeping around corners that is used many times. And it's used like the, the first really significant use of it is that winky scene where mm-hmm. the guy's explaining his dream and then they go outside to look behind, uh, the restaurant and we get a real slow forward that the camera is doing a very character perspective thing, uh, where it's not literally necessarily the eyeline of the characters, but you know, the characters moving slowly forward and we get like footage of them. And then we get the camera sort of looking the way they're looking, moving the direction they're moving, uh, taking slow panning glances around and really, really centering the corner. It's eventually going to get around, you know, as the subject of the frame. Uh, and it really does a great job. It's, it's very effective, uh, directing and cinematography to just create the sense of, needing to know what is around that corner and also dreading finding out what's around that corner. Um, so they really, they, 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 they do a nice slow take uh, there of moving around the back of the restaurant, which works great. Cause then they call that back cinematically several times, having essentially done a big establishing shot of uh, the geography of the outside and back of the Winkies. But anyway, they, they do that slow creep. And then eventually we get a scare there where the guy has a heart attack. Cause the, what are we going to call him? The mystery hobo? It's I, I I don't know what to describe this character as the the creepy 
uh, dirt person. Uh, or, I wonder if he's got a name in the script. Yeah, I don't know. Um, but it, uh, but yeah, the the scary, scary looking, mysterious, uh, dark modeled uh, person living behind the Winkies. Um, so it does that slow creep thing, and it's very effective. And then we get we end up with uh, not quite a jump scare, but you know, close to it uh, when the guy actually turns out to be there. Uh, but they use that camera move a lot throughout the film, and it's I think it's part of what gives it sort of a uh, horror-y sense in several places. Like it's it's really a, a, the the creepy tension part of a horror film rather than like you know a slasher sort of situation, obviously. But but that that really it's a recurring camera theme, and it becomes so much of a normal part of the character of the film uh, during those tense oh what am I going to find scenes. You know, we get the same sort of feel when when Reed is looking through her purse and discovers that there's a bunch of money in that weird key. And there's not even necessarily the same sort of creeping movement, but there's a very slow, deliberate opening of the purse. You know, everything is done with a kind of hesitation and, uh, you know, not gentleness, but uh, trepidation, maybe. Um, that, that It feels like such, a, such an interesting, strong uh, cinematographic theme in the film. That uh, I really liked. Yeah, there's um, there's this one shot, and it's it's during the uh, when they're going to Silencio that um, you know they 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 decide to go to Silencio. And then we see like, and it, it's pulled way back from like the door, which is set into like the side of a really tall building, so we don't see any sky. We're just in an alleyway blocked off by buildings everywhere really close to the ground and then the camera just like slowly goes towards the entrance and then we see uh, Rita and Betty and the camera just sort of like gets on them and then they go through and the door closes right in front of it and I thought that was a very you're never quite sure what perspective you just saw but it's it's something like it's it, it the the fact that it can't go through the door makes it feel like it you're you like sort of confirm the idea that this isn't just like a camera move but that you are you know in the point of view of something yeah, there's, it, it, it yeah that, that that moment was really interesting because of the sort of slow steady tense and trepidatious sort of camera thing recurring so much earlier in the film all of a sudden the camera is like super predatory and it's such an interesting it's such a weird interesting impact that that scene has after i think particularly the setup previously you know throughout the film where the camera hadn't been behaving like that at all and there's a little bit of a precursor to that big move in the alley where it makes that rush for the door where when they get in the taxi to Silencio, uh, we sort of do a uh, – there's an edit there where we cut away from the taxi where it cuts by getting very suddenly shaky and, and blurry and big bokeh all at once. Like, like I don't know, like maybe a transition during a dream where suddenly you know your brain makes a, a, a pretty rough cut or something like that. They also very much like – one, I, I don't remember if it, so they they did that a number of times, and I don't remember if they all were if any of them were before her masturbating, because they 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 did that a whole bunch of times in the scene when she was you know like crying and masturbating, yeah, uh, yeah. which is not a scene you often get with women in movies. No, like you'll get dudes, you 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 know like also not like very often, but you'll get dudes. It's super rare to see that sort of thing. Um, with a woman, uh, and uh, what was I going to say? Yeah, so they did a bunch of then, and then it keeps appearing after that. But like you're you're you can't not associate it with that previous scene, which adds this like very very weird like psychosexual element to a bunch of the stuff in this movie yeah. that wouldn't necessarily have it 
by itself. Yeah, no, I, I, absolutely, and it's oh god, it's it's such a good movie. It's such a good. Movie. It is. It's really <laughs> um, good. Movie. But yeah, so so a, a, anyway, I guess I guess that's my defense of the film as you know, cinematographically horror-y. Like that feels like the strongest sort of horror. Stuff the going um, on. the corpse, uh, the the oh yeah, I the guess corpse the corpse of Diane, Diane Selwyn. Um, wait, who was Di- Diane? Diane Selwyn. So the corpse of Diane Selwyn is Betty because Betty is Diane, right? Yeah. It's just yeah. basically yeah, Betty, is, Betty is like Betty Canter- Mary Sue of herself. Uh, is how I'm I'm thinking of it. Right. So um, the the corpse itself, the face of it. Um, that was terrifying. It, oh, it wasn't like a natural, like a just to add like to stuff that is you know naturalistic. It isn't. It wasn't a. Most of the corpse was more or less like um, like decomposed the amount like a like a body would have decomposed after some time. Um, but the face is this like weird like rictusy terrifying face that is not like the face of a corpse. It's it's just and they zoom in on it uh, a couple of times and then they do the thing where like the uh, the image breaks in two where they sort of defocus it and then so there's two images playing out at the same time when um, Rita begins screaming uh, when she sees yeah. Diane's dead body. Um, which is, I guess, when like Camilla is sort of breaking through, uh, is breaking through um, Rita in 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 the dream. Like the the reality of the situation is intruding. Um, but yeah, I, I thought that was very very like horror movie. Like and like the lead up to it when they're like you know very slowly opening the door. It was almost like cliche horror movie sort yeah. of stuff. Which would make sense because, like, this movie has, like, chunks of a bunch of different genre movies inside of it because it's a movie about L.A. and, you know. Um, and, and acting and movie making. And, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah the, the, the corpse stuff, it's interesting that, like, the, the corpse stuff definitely feels like if you wanted to make sort of a horror movie argument, that's uh, some pretty effective, like, creepy, gross-out stuff. It, it reminds me of – have you ever read um, – what's his name? Junji Ito? Uh, is he is he does horror manga? Uh, he did uh, Uzumaki, and then um, he did a couple of other ones. Like you might have seen it. There's like the the one where like the people find all of these holes that are shaped like their bodies in the side. Oh of yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So that guy, um, it, it really reminded me of that because he would have like these like long, long, uh, really dread e but like nothing particular happening segments and then like a splash page of like something like really intensely like viscerally horrible yeah. uh so it just reminded me of like how that worked um and it worked like that very very effectively the other thing of course that makes it a horror movie is that there's a magical box where terrible things happen uh which i, I was gonna say that yeah. is that is just from uh Hellraiser, right? Totally, totally. Yeah. I, uh, yeah this, is, this is the most, really, you know, whatever you may argue about the genre of this film or whatever, this is the most on-point episode we've done in like 40 <laughs> episodes. <laughs> clearly, that's a Le Marchand's box. Yeah. Uh, just a, a unusually stylish configuration that's, uh, you know, more, more sleek and simple. Uh, someone figured out how to like retool it. They had, they liked the original box, but they had some notes. They just want to, you know, just some few, some ideas to think about. It's uh, updated for the new millennium. I love, I love, I love the elaborate scroll work. But what if we, what if we went like, you know, smooth? What if we went uh, smooth, 
surface, glue. you know, something a uh, plastic, something with like a little bit of a glow to it. You know, I, it, it tested well. You know, it tested well. I think this is the right direction to go with this. Uh, also, the the whole thumb thing. I, I love the unlocking. I love it. I love it. I won't change. Wouldn't change a thing. But what if? It's literally a key. Let's make this user-friendly. Let's make it so people can figure out how to get it open. Because, you know, the, the thing is you don't want someone to bring this thing home and be like, eh, I, I like it, but I don't know how to work it. You know, that's, 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 that's bad news. No, we got to make sure people can tumble through a dimensional hole into a hellscape, you know. Uh, but other than that, I love it. Love it. Um, yeah, I don't know. It, it, it's, it's hard to believe that it wasn't somewhat of an intentional decision on Lynch's part to specifically – Sort of say, hey, you know what? Magical you know what? boxes. I'm gonna. I'm going to assume it was a conscious reference to Hellraiser and David Lynch's part because I even money, you know. Yep. Yeah. Why not? <laughs> uh, <laughs> what if we assume this is actually an this this was Hellraiser like six? It actually takes place in continuity with the Hellraiser films. Yeah, the original title was actually Mole Helland Drive, but uh, <laughs> they wouldn't let him do it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I I don't know. Are there are there other are there other like really strong direct horror reference we can we can pin to this film? Uh, uh, other, uh, uh, other than the general sound design, yeah. Uh, I mean, there's Lynch is obviously huge on sound design uh, in all of his films, uh, but there's a lot of shots in this movie. Uh, for example. Near the beginning, there's the, those overhead helicopter shots of downtown L.A. that you see in every movie that takes place in L.A. Yeah. But there's this just kind of angry, ambient drone kind of background <laughs> noise <laughs> to it that makes it feel very menacing. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. the same kind of sound comes back a lot in the film, but it, it really strikes me in that one shot at least. It'd be interesting to compare uh, to... To, to take, uh, I'm just going to stop in mid thought. Is what I'm going to do. It'd be really interesting to take the soundtrack of this film and the cinematography of this film and the way they do that sort of tension with discomforting music and compare that to similarly uh, Eyes Wide Shut. Really, I you know I, I find myself thinking about uh, which also really effectively used uh, you know an often relatively a musical in a you know traditional like oh this is a song since um, you know both films have very strong non-conventional soundtracks that keep along with weird uh, stories set within a city. Uh, I, I feel like I could make a stronger argument for this. No, if no, I, no, no. I, my shit I, together, but, I do think of the two films uh, as being similar in a lot of ways. Yeah. Uh, you got the, the, the dreaminess, the, the, you know, nightclub, as a recurring motif and yeah, I don't know. It'd be interesting to set them side by side, but, but it's interesting. Like the, the, the sort of ambient drone that works so well in this versus like the falling back on that super spare bit of uh, Ligeti, I think in mm -hmm. it's wide shut, you know, two very different kinds of sounds, but both very effectively sort of not quite being traditionally musical and just underscoring that tension and like adding something to the scene just by uh, being that, uh, musical analog to the lack of certainty about what's going on. But I also like the, speaking of the early shots, so we get er, early on in the film, we get those overhead shots of the city 
Uh, and we get looking down on the city from Mulholland Drive when Rita's just come out of the car accident. And so we get all these like the bright lights of L.A. And then later on when they're on their way to Silencio and we get that weird shaky cam transition when they get in the cab and they drive to the the club, we get these uh, you know shots out of the side of the the cab essentially you know at street level at a much more like dark and sort of grungy and this is just a this is a city and a city's not always a great thing sort of feeling. It even uh, looks like different film stock. Yeah, almost. yeah, yeah. But, uh, again, like Eyes Wide Shut. Yeah, maybe something a lot grainier. Um, yeah. So, yeah, the contrast between those, like, these are both just completely abstract. Here's some footage of, you know, L.A. at night uh, bits in the same film, but they have such a different feel. And it was it was interesting to me to see how much more hostile that later sort of taxi cab montage was. And then that's followed up immediately by that predatory, like, chase shot into the club. So the whole of a piece, it feels like, you know, Almost like this is this is the point at which you know, uh, if we want to think about it in terms of, let's say for argument, because I'm not going to say that uh, this is obviously what it is, but let's say for argument, let's go really Jacob's ladder with the structure of the film and say everything in the first two hours up to the the twist uh, is literally the collapsed, weird, dying dream of Diane in the moments. Uh, that she dies when she blows her brains out after maybe a bad drug trip uh, was what precipitated that, you know, then if the whole film is that, then these weird transitions work as the idea of a dream sort of shifting. And that whole thing where the taxi cab scene on the way to Silencio and all that just gets sort of rougher and weirder and stranger could be like, you know, okay, well, this is, this is sort of the dream going in a bad direction. This is like, you know, uh, uh, starting to have sort of like a worse trip sort of thing, like arguing that like, it's not so much that the, the story of the film is changing as the sort of emotional and, uh, you know, subjective substrate, like through which that dream is happening. Like suddenly you're having a little bit more of a bad dream, uh, sort of shift. So it's more what's going on with Diane neurochemically in that moment as things get worse as her body shuts down more, uh, is why the story takes on those different that predatory camera that that weirder shifting etc something like that is the vague argument I'm arguing I guess. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, thoughts. <laughs> Sorry. I'm really I'm really going like full bore today, and I feel kind of bad. it's like hey come on our podcast and then I'll talk for ten minutes straight. <laughs> <laughs> no, I've listened to this before. I know I know how you go. Um, but yeah, I, uh, yeah, I, I did like the contrast of those different sort of takes on cinematography of LA. I thought that was really effective in a, in, in kind of a subtle way. Like I'm not like I'm so smart. I noticed and other people wouldn't, but like, just like, it's something compared to, uh, as we were talking about, like the exposition so much early in the film, it feels like later in the film, you know, things like that are much more like it just, it just sort of happens on screen and, you know, it's not going to like it's not like Betty sitting there saying, you know, Rita, I feel strange about the city. It's, it's as if it's not the city. I thought, I, you know, there's, there's nothing like that. It's just like, yeah, you're going to have this, you know, essentially wordless. Cause that whole scene, like, you know, they, they go to Silencio and then, you know, we get nothing from the characters. We get the magician doing his weird sort of act. And then we get the song and we get them just like crying, uh, so the whole thing is very it, suddenly there's like almost nothing resembling dialogue the way the film has often used it up to that point. Well, yeah. And the, the whole film really just, it starts to feel like it's breaking apart uh, right about when they get to Silencio, you know, that all of a sudden 
the the camera work starts being very different. The editing starts being very different, uh, as you've noted. And then um, they're at Silencio, which is shot and edited in a much more conventional way. After that, they go back home, open up the box, and then immediately we're in the second part of the film, where there's a lot of elliptical editing, there's a lot of non-contiguous editing. Uh, the camera work is all very different. Uh, the sound design is all very different. I feel um, like the lighting was all much more consistently sort of like, sort of flat and, and, and realistic too. I, yeah, I, and the, the, everything, I mean, like... Lighting! Part, part, um, of, what, uh, part of what bolsters the, uh, the dream to reality argument is that everything about it looks more naturalistic in that last half hour, including the makeup, the hair, uh, everything looks more like real people and less like film stars. Yeah. Well, here's the thing um, about that specifically. Everything except Rita looks more naturalistic. Or not Rita, Camilla. Camilla looks like super idealized, even more so than in... um, in the like the the dream section, she's always like you know in she's in in you know in most of the movie she's you know she's physically she's like you know shaken up she's you know got cuts she's usually like unsure and then sometimes she's wearing that wig in like that last section of the movie she's like always like everything with her is on point like hair makeup she is like a fucking movie star mm-hmm. uh and she's you know completely suave and smooth and you know like when she needs to be vicious she is vicious um and like so everything except for her i think plays out really naturalistically and for her like this is it feels like sort of that is her version of Betty, where this is like everything that she would want to be, which is like this perfect, glamorous movie star. Um, and whereas, you know, like the, 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 the Betty idealization is of being like very good, but also like very good at, at acting. Like there's a point where she says, she's like, I'd rather be known as a good actress than a movie star. And like, I think that's sort of like a dividing line between her and, 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 uh, Rita slash Camilla. Um, yeah, no, I, I, I think it's really interesting to, like, if you take Rita from the first couple hours of the film, you know, the, the, the read I'm going with is that, you know, that is definitely some, it's a combination of, uh, projection of, uh, Diane's, you know, fantasy of the nature of her relationship with the Rita character, uh, and also a way to recontextualize her own failure as, as, as something that's a much more successful, happier story. And so there's that dependency of Rita on her. That seems like a big part of Diane's fantasy of Betty and Rita. Um, it's all those little things in there, like like Rita's terrible table read. I, I I thought was fantastic because they're in the kitchen and and we're starting to see Betty, you know, actually act a little bit, and then we're seeing Rita doing such a like an immensely bad job of reading lines. Yeah, it's not. It's even, not yeah, we we don't we don't enter the scene knowing it's a table read. We enter the scene seeing uh, Betty yelling like I don't. I thought I told you you can't come back yeah. here in in a manner that she could just very well be yelling that. Yeah, and yeah. you're like, wait, what? Did I miss? Did this? Did the fucking reel break? Uh, and it's, it's clever, and then it yeah brings it back. And oh no, they're doing a read of a scene. Oh okay, which then they bring that the the content of that scene back around several times later in the film. Um, 
but yeah, the, the whole idea of Rita as instead of being the, the glamorous, beautiful woman who got the role she didn't and broke her heart, you know, we've got Rita instead as this, this woman who can't even act, you know, can't even remotely act and, and, and needs Betty and, and, and is sort of, like you say, sort of like, like shaken and dependent. And it's, it's such a, I mean, if you, if you think about it in terms of like, what does this say about the psychology of Diane, that this is, you know, sort of her revenge fantasy is that her, the woman who broke her heart is instead her like talentless girlfriend. Um, yeah, it's, it's a real, it's a real cutting portrait of the, where yeah. her brain is at at that point. But it also makes sense if you're thinking of it in terms of kind of a weird idealistic slash revenge fantasy by someone who's in a real bad place. Um, oh, uh, lighting. You mentioned lighting. Somebody mentioned lighting. Yeah. Uh, there's so, uh, like flickering lights in David Lynch movies is a, a, a thing like that has always been in there and has always been like, um, sort of a symbol for some sort of evil or supernatural evil specifically, Mm -hmm. uh, coming into place. And, um, during the uh, the 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 botched uh, the botched uh, theft of the uh, the black book scene, which is like possibly the funniest thing I have ever seen in a David Lynch movie, like intentionally, one hundred percent intentionally, it is fucking hilarious. Like, I mean, like if you for some reason haven't seen Mulholland Drive, you haven't seen it in a while, um, just I'm I'm entirely sure you can just Google that one scene, and it and it works so well as a standalone scene too. Uh, of uh, Mark Pellegrino like botching an assassination job and having to kill like three people uh, in a vacuum. And, yeah, and yeah, so he then he, there's also like this vacuum, and then he shoots the vacuum. The vacuum for some reason overloads something, and there's like this like slight pan, uh, like where you like the the shot of the vacuum, like you know, shorting out. There's a slight pan, so you could see outside into the hallway, and in the hallway, the light begins uh, flickering in that very like Lynchian sort of way, and then like an alarm goes off, and it's even funnier. Um, yeah, it's like it's like it's like five yeah. minutes of Coen Brothers in the middle of a Lynch film. It's amazing. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, a- absolutely. Uh, Coen Brothers esque. Um, and then when. Uh, and this is also like a cross between like a scene that could be very much a Coen Brothers scene, but also a scene that could be like in a horror movie um, or a Coen Brothers horror movie, I guess. But uh, when Adam Kesher goes to see the cowboy, yeah, goes up goes up to see yeah. the cowboy at the at the ranch. Yeah, the there's the corral at the top of some hill. I think that's supposed to be exceptionally tall. I guess. Um, and you get like the the very uh, Lynchian sort of like you know car uh, like kind of like lost highway car you know headlights in in near darkness uh, leading up to it, and then there's like this flickering corral light that's mounted right under a cow skull that you know flickers into light. And then they have this very tense conversation in which which is. Just super weird looking because they're in. It, it's also like a very stage play conversation where they're like in a really open, like no fourth wall sort of. Like it would be like it would make sense that there wouldn't be a fourth wall in in this because it's a corral, it's open. Um, and then you know he's like wearing his um, like that black, like the big. He was. I can't tell if that's supposed to be just like a normal sized late '90s black suit or like a large black suit on a smaller dude. 
yeah, uh, no. Adam's suit. But yeah, but it's got like all those pink splotches from when he like destroyed his wife's jewelry with, you know, the pink paint. And then you've got the cowboy who's dressed very he he's he's just a weird character. He's he's not that <laughs> cowboy, but he's also quite cowboy indeed. And he's wearing a cowboy costume is how yeah. it is. Yeah, well, I would, yeah that's I exactly like it. Out, I would like to point out that that actor's name is Monty Montgomery. <laughs> that's a hell of a name. I think he he is definitely the cowboy. <laughs> um yeah. Yeah, it's, no, it's lit, it's it's lit so with so basically weird. one light. Like it's it's almost something out of like Dogville level of lack of you know, yeah, set details for something being shot in the film. Yeah, and when the light turns off in that, we watch it flicker off, but then we cut to Adam and the light. Um, the it's definitely like a stage light being extinguished on him. Yeah. Um, and oh, the, the film they, does that several the, times. Like, yeah, yeah, the, uh, the scene with uh, Mr. Roke, who is Michael J. Anderson uh, in a full body prosthesis mm-hmm. <laughs> in a wheelchair, uh, because Michael Michael J. Anderson, uh, he's uh, a man, the man from the other place in Twin Peaks, and he was in uh, Carnival as well. He is a little person, um, and in this movie, he is in a full body prosthesis. Uh, making him look like a regular sized person in a wheelchair with a very strangely shaped head. Um, and yeah, so when he is in his like, you know, glass doored office and uh, his lackey is like getting weird, you know, like almost like psychic instructions, it's supposed to be like, you know, that, you know, he doesn't have to say anything, but it definitely like comes off as weirder than that purposefully. And um, when, you know, his lackey exits the room, the scene fades out on, on Roke uh, and the lights go off on him again, like a little slowly so that you see the light going off on the person because the shadow starts changing because the light gets dimmer and then it goes off and then the light in the background goes off. Yeah. Uh, which was, I thought, was like, you know, very just like really driving it in and uh, yeah. That you know, like the like that we're not like this isn't like a fade to black in a movie. This is like a fade to black on a stage. Yeah. Well, it's a it's a real weird interaction of 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 lighting and potential because like you're watching a film, you expect a fade as a literal like no, we'll we'll just fade down the image in editing. But there's obviously some lighting going on with that, especially since you have different light sources disappearing at different times. And yeah, the the interaction between the actual physical light moves. And then, you know, the idea of just fading and editing, yeah, it makes for a really complicated and sort of subtly disorienting uh, scene that's, like, I think super effective, even if you're not really thinking about the lighting. It just, it feels a little bit off. It feels wrong. It's like, uh, what's her name? Uh, Shelley Duvall's cigarette in The Shining with, like, the really, really long ash that they, like, stuck a, like, a piece of wire in there to make sure it, like, came to this really, really long, ashy point where even if you don't smoke, you, you know, like, or even if you're not that aware of cigarettes, you know that this is, like, a weird thing that, you know, the camera is, uh, what do you call it, Um, focusing on or, you know, like, leaving in focus specifically. Yep. I remember, I remember there's that, there's that scene early on in, in Aliens, uh, where Ripley is sitting and smoking and it comes, comes like they established that she's sort of dealing with shock and nightmares and whatnot, uh, having come back from the events of the first film and also being, you know, 57 years later. And so there's, there, there, there's a shot early on where they cut back to her and she's just sort of sitting and 
zoning out and she's got a, a long ash on a cigarette as well. And I remember seeing that when I was like a kid and my sister had to sort of explain why that was notable because like I had no you know, personal experience with the concept of like the mechanics of smoking or anything. So I was like, okay, well, it's a cigarette, I guess. Um, and yeah, the idea of like conveying that sense of you know, catatonia and passage of time through this implausible state of a, a cigarette. Uh, I'd be curious to see what else, where else that's popped up in film. Actually, it seems like it could be a very, very specific short supercut. <laughs> it's two shots. I wanted to, <laughs> so, so here's, here's, here's a question about thinking about the narrative of the film. If we're running with the idea that the first couple hours are essentially some sort of, fantasy dream something reworking of the world by uh a distraught diane um much of the film takes place around rita and or betty but not all of it and you know the question is how do you incorporate you know the the other bits of the narrative in there because i guess the other significant perspective character is adam the director and and you know Diane isn't Adam. Diane isn't doing scenes about Adam there. Like, you know, he's going off and having these weird adventures. Um, but to some extent, she, Diane, uh, has this relationship with Adam as the director of the film that she's not starring in. And her now ex girlfriend is starring in and her now ex girlfriend is totally clearly boning Adam. Uh, and the whole thing is a weird psychosexual mess. So the idea that maybe he's just having all this weird shit going on because, again, it supports this conspiratorial idea that, like, you know, this guy, to some extent, gets what's coming to him and also an explanation for why she didn't get the role she wanted is, oh, because, like you say, there's this weird Hollywood conspiracy. Uh, but it, it just makes it it makes it trickier to see it as just a totally straightforward, you know, from my own perspective fantasy about, you know, my life when all of a sudden she's – if this is her sort of fantasizing, then it's her fantasizing about someone she doesn't particularly care about having interactions with people she doesn't meet, et cetera. Uh, it just, I, I think it's, it's interesting how that complicates any sort of specific, uh, straightforward explanation of exactly what's going on in the first couple hours of the film, uh, when it gets away from either her or Rita as sort of her fantasy analog, whatever. Yeah, I mean, I am, uh, I, for a lot of reasons, a little bit dissatisfied with the Jacob's Ladder interpretation of this movie. Uh, I, for that reason, um, for a lot of reasons, I think that it's the, the film, uh, there's a lot of that going on, but I think that it's a lot more complicated than that. Yeah. Um, and simultaneously less complicated than that, if that makes any sense. Uh, because I think... Uh, in order to, in order to hold that reading, you have to do a lot of complicated stuff. You have to say, you have to, uh, you know, figure out why, uh, Camilla Rhodes is a name that applies to her lover in the real world, but then she get it gets applied to this blonde girl who looks like her in the dream. Um, and it's, it seems like a lot of footwork, um, <laughs> which, which is not something that, really any other David Lynch film invites uh, with the possible exception of lost highway. Um, but that, that gets the same Jacob's ladder kind of reading put onto it. Um, 
with with the same problems. I, yeah. I think more what I tend to focus on in trying to figure out what the fuck is going on in this movie is uh, the whole scene in at Silencio, which definitely feels like a pivotal scene, and it feels like the scene where the movie would like you to take some sort of meaning. And it seems to get left off mostly in the Jacob's Ladder reading, uh, other than it just being the scene where it says, oh, this is a dream. It's not real, which it doesn't really feel like uh, that what that scene is actually about. Um, moreover, I, uh, I, I, the movie to me feels more like uh, just kind of a, a general... Uh, I guess for lack of a better term, I would say like a kind of like a cubist look at this situation in which both parts of the movie are real in different ways or real in the same way differently. Yeah. Uh, Betty and Diane are the same person just seen differently. And Rita and Camilla are the same person just seen differently uh, in different, uh, different ways modes of filmmaking almost uh because as i mentioned you know the the first two hours of the movie for the most part until they get into the taxi uh it's all shot very straight a lot of over-the-shoulder stuff um everything is very easy to figure out what is going on uh while you're watching it and uh and that's the last half hour all of a sudden the editing is all jumbled up uh stuff is presented non-chronologically there's a lot of cuts where for example diane is at the cocktail party and adam is about to announce that he and camilla are getting married and she's turning away uh and upset and then there's the sound of dishes breaking and she jumps and looks over and it's the winkies waitress has dropped a bunch of dishes and now she's suddenly at winkies meeting with the hitman yeah um which is the kind of stuff that in most movies we would describe as dreamlike and here in Mulholland drive, this is the part that uh, feels more realistic. Yeah. So it seems like the movie is about um, different kinds of filmmaking as different kinds of dreaming. Um, And the reminder being that uh, it's, it's all an illusion. None of it is real. Um, Like I said, the acting in the last half hour is presented as very naturalistic, but it's prefigured by that scene, by the audition scene with uh, Betty, where she acts very naturalistically yeah. in the same way. But at that point, we don't think, oh, this is this must be reality. She's acting naturalistically um, because we can see that it's a tape recording. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I think I think that's it's a really interesting way of getting at it. And, and I, I can, I can totally get on board with the idea of treating it not so much like, well, the explanation for the film is that it was a drying dream so much as like, these are two different lenses on the same sort of pieces. You know, yeah, there's, yeah. um, there's a lot of equating between, um, uh, Betty slash Diane and Rita slash Camilla, where they're sort of not implied to be the same person necessarily but definitely when it switches out between who is who that i think like the it's a dream sort of explanation never really it it never really figures into it where um you know the whole thing where she she puts on a wig that you know to 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 look like her there's 
there's a there the, the scene where um she like when uh Diane specifically like hallucinates or or really wants to see uh Camilla there and then she look you know and then she's looking over like seeing Camilla like in her house and then she's looking over and then she's looking back at herself yeah. and then we see that like at some point she's moved yeah, yeah, to that yeah. spot um, I, lo- I loved that specific little thing you know it it, it it like going back to Kubrick again like it was very David Bowman uh in the end of 2001 when he's in the alien hotel room essentially and sort of watching himself leap forward in he's time through his life. unstuck in time. Yeah. So, and that, that, that shot, the fact that, yeah, she's looking at Camilla and then we cut back to her and then she becomes very visibly upset and we cut back to where she's looking, which in this case happens to be her yeah, in that, in that future moment. And it's, like, I don't think the film's trying to literally put her there and saying, oh, my God, she's – like, it's not – whereas right. 2001 was kind of saying, okay, there is something very subjectively weird going on with David Bowen's, you know, mm. experience at this point. It seemed much more like, no, a kind of a figure thing, but it's so it's so effectively unsettling. It's it's such a nice little <laughs> yeah. touch of, like, what – And it's – yeah, and, and like Tim said, it's in, like, the ostensibly, like, naturalistic part of the movie yeah. is is a shot that is, you know, far more um, – I guess experimental than anything we saw in like the more affected part of the movie, I guess. Mm -hmm. Um, And also there's, uh, you know, there's essentially a shot of them having sex and then arguing is replaced with a shot of her masturbating, which I thought was again, very like combining, like not just Betty into Diane, but combining, Betty and Diane into Camilla and Rita in like a way that isn't uh oh uh toward the end in in the limo where she says the stuff that you know Camilla that uh Rita says right, we, right, right, when right. The, we don't when stop the car here. when the yeah when the limo pulls over with Rita in it she says we don't stop here uh and then the guy is just like and then you know the guy pulls the gun on her and tells her to get out and then you know the the the, the teens the drunk teens hit the car you. and then Cam- <laughs> yes, the the rowdy youths hit the car, and uh, Camilla ends up wandering from uh, from Mulholland Drive into L.A. And this time, you know, Diane says those words, but then it turns out that rather than being told to get out, Cam- and uh, Camilla appears from the section where she went to and gets in the car. It's like a really like serious, like bookend reversal sort yeah. of thing. Um, and, and again, it, it, it combines the characters of Diane and, and, uh, Camilla together in, in, into one, but it doesn't stick in the way the others do. Yeah. And I, I don't think the, it's a dream explanation sort of, um, sort of accounts for that in any way. See, I, I it's guess really a really significant thing. Like, I, I don't want to, I, I, I'm not like, you know, I don't, I don't want to argue hard and, and, you know, no flexibility for the it's a dream explanation. I, I think it I think it works pretty well, but part of what it works for some things. What, like my, it, my, my feeling about it is this: I, like like I'm thinking of it's it, it's a dream in the sense of like there is there are all these elements and they come back in various forms. The the weird blue key for the box versus the much more normal blue hex key is just one obvious little thing. But all these character overlaps, all these recurring themes. Uh, these repetitions of elements like uh, like the limo dialogue at the beginning versus near the end, uh, the the reuse of the "you came back" line from that scene like four or five times, including that weird little fantasy thing we were just talking about, where she's like, "You came back to Camilla, who is there for a moment, and then it turns out she's actually looking at herself, but it's not." 
you know, right. You know, all these things, the idea of this as being elements basically in her subconscious, you know, being refigured into a dream, you know, it, it's kind of like, you know, there's a Jungian collective consciousness sort of argument there to take it beyond just the idea of this is this one one's dream, more the idea, okay, this is maybe reality's a dream and this is a dream of a shared reality, you know, restated from the things that are lurking down below in all of us, even if we aren't conscious of them sort of way. So a little bit a little bit more broadly figurative of it's a dream, but still like sort of arguing that it's possible for it to be this weird jumbled up, not quite right a set of analogs because it's more taking things out and, and reassembling them. Uh, but also, I mean, the, the idea of like, I don't know if, I, I don't know if Lynch is really union at all exactly, but like he, this is a guy who's into transcendental meditation and definitely has some, uh, depending on, you know, how you feel about it, either mystical or wooish feelings about sort of the nature of reality and a relationship with it and so on. So the idea that, yeah, it could be sort of explained more like that. Like, yeah, maybe it is a meditative, you know, vibe on the nature of reality and, and you know, looking at the same thing from two very different perspectives, you get these two very uh, different pieces out of it. I had some other point I was going to make and I completely <laughs> lost it. Something <laughs> something about the dream stuff, but uh, uh, we'll see if it comes back to me. Uh, <laughs> shit. <laughs> but, oh, okay, you know, the other thing I want to say, sort of tying into that is – the idea, what you were just talking about with uh, Rita and uh, Betty sort of both being analogs for Diane and Camilla, but also being sort of like a merged, you know, representation of, of maybe what Diane wants or hopes for or is, you know, fantasizing about. Um, there's a couple moments in the, the film that really like put the nail on the head, I feel like that in a subtle way. There's the scene after uh, – after Betty and, and Rita uh, end up getting into bed together and having sex and then I don't remember exactly how – I think right after that we get a shot. Uh, this is when this is when Rita starts you know, saying silencio and then they get up and go to the nightclub. So, so uh, they make love. Then we cut to a shot of Rita's face in extreme close-up. And, you know, we're looking at her in profile. She's, you know, laying face up in bed. So her head on the pillow, head face facing up. And then in the background behind her uh, in nearly as extreme close up uh, is Betty's face. And her face is facing towards the camera um, laying on her side in bed. And they're lined up just right so that there is oh, the, the Yeah, the persona shot. Yeah, so there's this merging of the two of them into, yeah, it's literally like a a two-face illusion sort of thing done as this shot to the point where their lips line up like perfectly. Uh, And it's it's just – it feels like a really, really effective way of saying, okay, there is literally a kind of two people and one person thing going on here that fits really well with the idea that that all this is sort of like – in some sense or another, a play playing out in Diane's head that like, you know, this is her thinking about both her I- idealized self as Betty and her idealized partnership with Rita, but also Rita expressing sort of things she wishes were in herself. You know, if she didn't get the role that Camilla got, uh, it's partly like, what if, what if she had more of that Camilla in her, but represented as two separate characters? I don't know. It's, it's an interesting mess of, of, uh, uh, of sort of persona and uh, and image and stuff. 
There's also a lot of phones that aren't cell phones in this movie. Did you know? Yeah, that? a lot like, of. There, there, there's a phone with a light on it that tells you that there's a phone there. Yeah, I loved that. I loved that. That grunge yellow phone, and there's like a, a circular fluorescent light just pointing right at it from four inches away. I thought that was um, the like the, the, a lot of like the the I think the. The, the the setting in it is also like in the, in like the the dream section is also I guess like unnaturalistic where like the entire like the 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 Roach Motel the the like the really shitty hotel that guy was in uh, was was also very like it 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 was clearly like the set of a thing being you know like it, it was it was a set it was like a movie or theater set because it was just like it was it it, it it, it was cramped in in certain points, then it was just wide open, even though it was supposed to be cramped in. Well, and I think the camera even moves through the wall after he's done talking to Cookie. Yeah, yeah it does. Yeah, There's no fourth wall on it. Do you feel like Cookie was also the MC from Silencio? Or? He is, yeah. Uh, I mean, uh, I, I know it's the, the same actor, but I'm, I'm saying, saying, was that actually Cookie? And oh, was, oh, I think so. Was his place up the- above Silencio? Uh, yeah. I mean, Yeah. I I I mean, twins are in everything in David Lynch movies. So, how much money can he make on that shitbag motel? Yeah, no, he's got to <laughs> he's got to make it up for with overpriced drinks. That's right. Uh, for but his super avant-garde stage theater place. Yeah. <laughs> also, it's th- a this nice is, club with theater seating. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I don't, yeah. I loved I loved how straight up like David Lynch of a set the inside of Silencios was too. Like we've literally yeah. got red, giant red, curtain. yeah, red <laughs> curtains and an old timey microphone. It's like okay, this is the large blue wig. Yeah, uh, never explained in any way. Yeah, and yet come back at around to again at the very end. Uh, maybe maybe she represented uh, you know uh, critical appreciation for high art, and there's there again is the great actress versus movie star thing, and maybe she represents some sort of like nominal ideal of a critic who would appreciate the actual think- subtlety of Diane's performative ability versus the you know uh, cheesy movie star emptiness of Camilla's uh, beauty and success. I think she's just the David Lynch version of Waldorf and Stadler. That could be too. <laughs> the original cut, she was like, "Yeah, <laughs> There was a there was a good opportunity for a super dumb joke that would have been terrible for the movie, but I kind of wish it had happened. Which is when when we're getting that slow scene of looking through uh, Rita's purse and they they pull out all that money and mm-hmm. you know they were looking for ID to figure out what her name was and I was really hoping that like you know. For some reason, Betty Boulina was like, oh, your name's Benjamin Franklin. Uh, <laughs> but didn't happen. Uh, oh, if only. Also, a, a really a really consistent thing. I, 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 so Betty threw out, uh, again, was sort of like the idealizing of characters and sort of representing parts of things she would like about her life versus whatever. Uh, Betty is consistently in pinks, pink lipstick, pink pink shirts, Versus mm-hmm. Rita's very very dark red lipstick, and, and and there's a lot of reds in the film. Uh, while Betty ends up having like this pink shade instead, that seems to play very very well to like you know the innocence and fresh faced small town whatever versus like the more raw sensuality of of, of Rita. I, I don't they know what to do with this, but that's, that lot. is the exact same pink 
that Adam pours into his wife's jewelry box. <laughs> and and he, she gets all over her dress and he gets all over his suit as well. Yeah, that's, yeah. that's interesting. I, I don't know what to do with it, but it's it's Have the you, identical color. They, they decolor Rita a lot uh, to make the reds on her stand out, but her skin sort of fade into a gray. Have you noticed that? I did not particularly notice that. She they they did that pale. like two or three times. Yeah. yeah. Like yeah. It, it goes past pale where they basically like make her skin almost like monochromatic or like, you know, green and black or, you know, duochromatic or whatever it is when it's two colors. Um, but, uh, yeah, they, 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 they did that a couple of times, like in contrast to like Betty's being extremely pink. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, which they, yeah. They, they get away from at the end. I, I think... I think Diane is still wearing. Uh, I feel so bad for anybody who hasn't seen the movie and is trying to follow the podcast. <laughs> it's like, what wait, the who the fuck is Diane? About? What are you? Ta-? But anyway, so so Diane, we see later uh, when she goes to the party, she seems to be. It might still be a slightly pinker shade of lipstick. It could just be a little bit of different coloration and lighting too. But in any case, she's wearing. She's got red on her outfit, and like everybody is in red uh, in that scene. Like, uh, just like there's a bunch of red clothing. Camilla's uh, got the same, you know, red lipstick basically, but she's also wearing a big red scarf, and uh, I think Coco is there in like a red shawl or something, and the very red lipstick. And uh, it was interesting to see. I feel like basically pink disappeared uh, at that point in the film, which again goes with sort of like the the shift in 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 the style of things and in the realization of the character of Diane versus the realization of Betty. Um, but yeah, no, I, I hadn't, I had made, I hadn't made the the paint connection, but that's a good one because like it's a really, it's a really pink, pink that paint that and it really is bringing in there. Um, and so Adam ending up with pink all over him as a result of that, and also the super meaningful eye contact during the scene where he ends up casting Camilla Rhodes because he was instructed to. But there's this strong implication of uh, like life changing connection between him and and Betty as she's standing on the set and he glances back at her and their eyes lock and all that. Uh, the, the pink paint on him could be sort of like, could work thematically as the idea of there is something of Betty, you know, getting onto him throughout it. And there's like this, uh, another little mark of maybe destiny, but then the conspiracy gets in the way and prevents that from happening. Um, I also thought Louise, the freaky uh, uh, psychic neighbor, Oh yeah. Uh, who at one point responds to Betty saying, My name's Betty with No, it's not when I think she was actually saying, No, it's not you that I'm talking about, but still it's a perfect like, well, no, that is not your name. Uh one of many of those things in the film. But, oh yeah, there's a ton of those. Yeah. Uh, but, when when they uh when they call Diane Selwyn's phone number and Betty says, It's strange to be calling yourself. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh yeah. Yeah, I, I loved how that ended up coming around too. And Diane Selwyn turns out, in fact, to be Betty. If Betty were much more world worried, because that's uh, yeah, no, it was it was beautiful. Yeah, um, that was a nice little turn when we heard her answering machine uh, later on in the film. Um, but 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 Louise, the psychic, also I, I looked a little bit visually like that could be an analog for the uh, the freaky mystery hobo person. Uh, just in terms of like the big sort of hood of of hair and sort of darkened face because of that, um, I don't know if there's actually anything there. It just it, it just struck me at the moment when I was watching that. The hobo is actually played by a woman. I don't think it's the same actress though. Yeah, I wasn't sure. It, really, it, the, I for some reason I was like convinced that it was the um, 
that it was the uh, guy that played the guy that uh, what's his face shot. Yeah, that's a specific thing. Pellegrino shot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I thought guy, it was that guy. The, the chatty oh, no. old buds, the guy who had the black book. Uh, it, it, I mean, it could have been like it's it, the the whole makeup job on the freaky hobo is such that like it's basically dazzle camouflage on a face in yeah. terms of like you know light and dark splotches <laughs> and bum. Uh, yeah. But actress's name is Bonnie Aaron's. Okay. Mm. Yeah. No. I. It's weird. I. I keep thinking of it as like hobo guy in a lot of cases in some of the shots it felt like it read a little bit more male to me but i think in the big initial reveal around the corner from winkies during that scene where the guy's a heart attack or whatever did definitely read read as a woman to me so it's it's weird that it's sort of like gone into this amorphous place where i don't really have a fix on the sense of gender well and uh, uh the guy in winkies who's describing his dream he says there's a man behind this place yeah he's what he's doing yeah it. true true we're we're programmed to expect that it's going to be a man. Yeah. Uh, oh, geez. Um, well, okay. You see here, I don't know. Here, here's, here's another little thing on the, the, it's a dying dream sort of thing is, uh, one of the first images we see in the film is like, a sort of, heavy tortured breathing as a perspective shot takes us in on the pillow in apartment 17 on which we find Diane dead later. So like, like the literal framing of the film starts with something bad is going on with someone on the way down to this pillow in this room we will later see. Uh, so, I mean, it's, it's a little thing, but it's also kind of a big thing if you're, if, if you're trying to work out where the framing is going there, cause there's not really a, I don't know. There's not really an explanation for that shot that doesn't involve the idea that as a framing device, here's a character in distress leading right up to everything we're about to watch. Uh, even though I know that the film's so nonlinear in other ways that uh, it's not a lock or anything. just want to throw that out there. No, I don't. I, uh, I think that there are definitely uh, dreams in the movie. I think, it's, I think it's more likely that both sections of the movie are dreams. Um, Maybe one each from a character from the other section, though. I could buy that. I'm definitely not arguing for no dreams. Well, yeah, no, and and yeah, I, yeah, no, I, I I could buy the idea that it's more of like an Ouroboros thing where there is these sort of lenses into different dream realities from sort of mutually opposing sides. It's those MC Escher hands that are drawing each other. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I yeah, I I mostly I just bristle at the idea that it's actually. Uh, a very it, the the entire story of the movie is one that could take place in the real world, and it's just been distorted to bring us entertainment. Yeah, I think that that's totally inaccurate. I wanted to say I, I don't know if I mentioned this earlier, but I, I wanted to specifically contrast, like going back to that audition scene where it suddenly becomes this intensely uh, sexual thing out of nowhere. Um, Contra- sort of just the contrast of the zero to 60 of that scene where all of a sudden we go from, from the Betty we know to this mm-hmm. character being acted. And it's like an immediate, like very, very intimate, very sexual thing uh, to the whole arc of Betty and Rita throughout the, the rest of that first couple hours of the film where it's such a slow burn of like looks and touching and proximity and intimacy that just sort of like, you you can you can see the possibility of it going there very early because of the way they 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 treat it, but it really it it's so slow and and the fact that there are both of those things in the same film that Betty has both of those sort of like you know 
this this very slow build and also this like immediate like breakneck establishment of sexual energy. I thought that was it was interesting that those were both in the narrative there. Is what I thought. <laughs> uh, question, question for uh, everybody who has any perspective on uh, what's going on in this movie. After Silencio, uh, and they get back to to uh, Aunt Ruth's apartment, uh, Rita goes into the bedroom to unlock the box, and Betty has disappeared. And she looks around; she can't find Betty. And then she opens the box. The camera goes into the box. And then the box drops on the floor and it has, uh, in some way swallowed Rita or made her vanish. And then aunt Ruth wanders in and looks around the room, having heard a noise apparently. And there's no evidence that Betty or Rita has ever been there. Right. I explain. <laughs> so I don't. So the character that we're introduced to as Aunt Ruth in the first part of the movie, I think that's just some woman that lives in that apartment that at some point Diane Selwyn had been witness to in some way. That there exists this apartment and that possibly this woman lives in it, or it could just be some woman. And. What happens is, is that the, 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 the two realities, the, the, the first half reality, the first section reality and the second section reality, there's points where they, um, overlap. And I think the, uh, Diane Selwyn's dead body is one of those points. And I think that room at that time is one of those points. And then, like, one of those realities sort of wins out and, you know, you know, overcomes everything from the other ones. So, you know, by the time that, that the, the red-haired woman that we think that we originally knew was, you know, uh, her aunt, by the time she gets in there, her reality is completely won over and there's no, you know, there's nothing for her to see there. It's just, it's just everything is as it should be because the other one has now been in some way extinguished. Okay, so let's, I'm going to run with this. I have no idea how much credence <laughs> I give this idea. Um, but so let's, it's, it's like a Donnie Darko situation. Uh, if you have bothered to listen to the, uh, atrocious director's commentary on Donnie Darko <laughs> to figure out what the hell's going on. Uh, and so there are parallel universes in some way in Mulholland Drive. And that's what we're seeing. The two parts of the movie are two different universes. Uh, and there are thin places between the two universes. Uh, and one of the universes has discovered that the other one exists and they want to do away with it for whatever reason. They're competing in some way uh, This is the for plot of an episode of Are You Afraid of the Dark? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's clearly where Lynch got it. Uh, so it's the, a uh, incredible. It is it. I okay. So just give me two seconds to find. Wait, are you afraid of the dark? It's it's uh, two universes. It's the lynchiest thing I had ever seen before. Um, before I had ever even known who Lynch was, and I need to find the name of this episode so people can look it up. Um, but yeah, I'm sorry. Go on. Uh, so. Uh, one of the, one of the universes finds out about the other one and needs to do away with it for reasons, uh, that we can discover later. Uh, and so they send this, uh, creepy behind the winkies hobo, uh, with this magical blue box that will collapse the universe. Uh, and we know that because we see him 
in the universe that wins, which is the more naturalistic one from the last half hour of the movie. We see him with the blue box. He puts in a little paper bag and drops it on the ground. And the two creepy old people from the beginning of the movie <laughs> run out of it. Uh, we also see the blue box peeking out of Diane's uh, nightstand drawer when she pulls the gun out. Oh, really? Yeah, hmm. you can see it in there. It's in there. Uh, anyway, somehow the blue box gets sent to the other universe and... Uh, Eventually, the uh, the characters from that universe are tricked into opening it up, at which point their universe is destroyed. It disappears entirely. Uh, and that nice red-haired woman who lives in that apartment uh, in our universe wanders in because it was a thin place. She heard something happening, and she doesn't know what's going on, but that confirms to us, the audience, that that universe has been extinguished. Right. And now the rest of the narrative will take place in the one universe that still exists. It's actually a science fiction story. Hmm. I'll buy it. Sold. I, uh, <laughs> no, I, 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 I like, cause the box is an unavoidable thing. Like, unless we just say the box is, uh, you know, just literally, it's uh, guilt. a figurative thing, you know, it, it, it's, it, it's a conspicuous artifact in the, the first couple hours of the film. Uh, it doesn't even seem to behave in understandable ways because it just like appears in, uh, I guess Betty's clutch uh, at Silencio after the the performance or whatever. Yeah, you know, and and the key had been in Diane's bag all along, and and so how it got into Betty's purse, the box, who knows? That uh, has to be if if we're trying to figure out on a narrative level what happens in this movie, which I don't particularly care about. <laughs> uh, but we are. How it got into her purse has to be a pivotal question. Yeah. Like, I know it, it's not impossible. She was carrying it all along. She's like, Oh wait, that's right. I have a weird blue box that, you know, they yeah. sent with me from Ontario. Uh, um, but jitterbug competition. Yeah. Yeah. That was the prize. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, we could say, okay, here's the thing. Opening the box and messing with the nature of reality. When, Adam Kesher finds his wife in bed with Bill Ray Cyrus. He goes and gets a can of bright pink paint and opens a box and messes with the nature of the reality of her jewelry. Oh. So in a sense, like, you know, he's pouring pink paint into, uh, the universe of her jewelry and, uh, Betty and Rita end up pouring the pinkness of, Betty into the void inside the box of <laughs> trans-dimensional narratives. So there you go. That's that yeah, that, together. That seems pretty yeah. solid. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh, I, uh, here, here's a little stretch just for the hell of it. But uh, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, but I want to cough. Uh, so Rebecca Del Rio is the lady who ends up singing. In, in Silencio, and it's Rebe Rebecca Del Rio, actual singer, appearing as herself, Rebecca Del Rio, uh, and yet appearing as apparently a false, you know, pantomiming version of herself because it's all a tape recording, blah, 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 blah. But Rebecca Del Rio, Rio, R River, Deep River, Ontario, oh. uh, a, a, a deep river running through the world, a deep river, a river where you can't perceive the things that nonetheless are there down at the bottom, the subconscious. A deep river. Yeah. Ontario ontology. <laughs> eh? Eh? 
Canada? <laughs> but should I da? I don't know. Oh. Uh, <laughs> I'll stop. But uh, <laughs> the cowboy comes in. Okay, so the, the whole transitionary scene where they disappear into the box. And then we get some slow fades in and out. Uh, we we see the cowboy come in and say, you know, hey, pretty girl, time to wake up mm-hmm. uh, in apartment 17. Uh, we see healthy flesh of sleeping Diane apparently or possibly just just then had died Diane and then we get like slow fade back to black and back and we get the mottled flesh and then we get knocking and Betty does in fact wake up except for it's not Betty that's when it's Diane now for the first up. time yeah. yeah so 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 it's the ambiguity is is that where she's laying when she's laying as a corpse or is that where she's laying before she's a corpse that's just the position she sleeps in and then the cowboy, who the fuck knows, is the cowboy an agent of the transition between dimensions? Is he a is he a bookkeeper? So he's in he both says, of them. He says to Adam, um, "You'll see me one time, one more time if you do good, and you'll see me two more times if you do bad." Oh, I didn't even think about that. And he says that to Adam. Yeah. So we, the audience, see him twice more, and he, but. We see him when he, he says, uh, in Apartment 17, it's time to wake up, pretty girl. Uh, and then we also see him walk through the background at the cocktail party, and Diane sees him. I don't think Adam sees him, but he's in that scene. Um, does that count as once or twice? Was he speaking I, to us, the audience, at I, that point? Possibly the both. We see him twice. So, we, so. we do see him twice, but does that mean that we've done bad? I, yes. I, I would accept that kind of like moralistic... Uh, Wackadoo clusterfuck attack by David Lynch on my person. <laughs> I, I can believe he would do Maybe that. Maybe the oh, bad no, thing we did was assume the movie is working in a certain way. Um, yeah, that's it. And that's like the thing to tell us, hey, maybe your theory for what's what isn't holding up. <laughs> you have to rewrite your if, – if you want to interpret the movie correctly, you have to rewrite it to exclude one of these scenes. And when people point out that you exclude it, you just say, shut the fuck up. I don't want to be bad in David Lynch's eyes. Uh, well, no, I like that. I like the idea that Adam sees him once, we see him twice, and so we've aired in a way that somehow Adam, Adam hasn't. Because Adam is super happy, obviously, in the in the last bit of the film, uh, much to Diane's chagrin, obviously. Well, uh, and the, the thing that the cowboy is telling him to do is to cast uh, blonde Camilla Rhodes in his picture. Yeah. And he does that. He says, this is the girl. Yeah. Uh, and Angela Badalamenti, uh, you know, smiles yeah. or looks intimidated. <laughs> Um, a slightly so, more gentle so, kind of intimidating. So at least as far as uh, we've been led to believe, uh, he has done exactly what the cowboy wanted him to. So there's no reason for him to uh, see him twice. Yeah. And so he doesn't, presumably. Right. But we do. Yeah. Yep. That's a, yeah, I forgot all about that like very, very pointed, obvious statement by the cowboy. Like, <laughs> yeah, I don't need to think about this anymore. I'll just say, oh, hey, it's a cowboy later, and, and that, that's as far as I'm going to take it. Uh, yeah. Yeah, this movie. It's a good movie. I, uh, I, I, good movie. I don't know if it's really a horror movie, but, uh, but it's a movie that's got some – you know, and, and it's funny that it, it was at the top of that list you saw for like you know the best 100 horror movies since The Shining since I think it's kind of not a horror movie in the same way that The Shining is arguably not a horror movie. Like you know, they're both films that are – so textural and so interesting in how they use menace and slow burn and 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 you know a mix of 
things explicitly said and things very explicitly not uh, and weird little flickers of nonlinearity. Like all these things contribute to such uh, a tense and uh, oppressive sort of feel to the film even without having a lot of like horror type stuff happening. Uh, that it's really it's really effectively off-putting. It's really effectively unsettling as a film, and maybe that's a reasonable argument for uh, what the nature of horror is. Because once and for all, we'll solve that somehow. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, no. It's, so so I think I think there's if you're going to take the idea of you know jarring the psychology of the viewer as a fundamental concept of horror, sure, it's totally a horror movie. Like like there's existential and. Uh, yeah, there's a lot of existential terror wrapped up in this if you're trying to make sense of it and, you know, figure out the nature of reality based on some sort of analysis of the plot of the film, you know. So I don't know. I don't know. But I'm glad I watched it again. I'm so glad I watched it yeah. again. And it's clear to me that there, I, I need to watch it some more and do some reading because there's so much to it, uh, even just in some of the basic things that you guys pointed out that hadn't really, you know, jumped out to me uh, after a pretty close watch, you know. But yeah, I don't know. Any 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 further thoughts from either of you? I think I am it's about Mulholland and Drive. No, no, that's a complete lie. <laughs> but <laughs> you're turning into a robot anyway, so maybe that's maybe that's our cue. Uh but yeah, hey, uh Tim, thanks so much for coming on and talking with us. Yeah. Yeah, yeah thanks for having us. Great. We're definitely happy back. We'll we'll do uh uh you know uh, oh, you know, here we go. One one last little horror note. Maybe maybe this is what we'll do. No, this isn't what we'll do. But <laughs> Laura, La- La- Laura Harris, ha- whatever. Herring? Uh, Herring, yes. Um, she got her start in film. Her first film role was in Silent Night, Deadly Night 3. So wow. she's got a fucking horror pedigree that justifies it all. Well, so, uh, Naomi Watts was in The Ring. Yeah. Yeah. Also, the ring. <laughs> I'm not sure. I think the ring was. I think it was after this. Uh, let me look it up real quick. Uh, oh, like the next year, actually. Um, <laughs> so yeah, right in there. Big, big. Maybe that's big. what got her the part, like Maybe. Cabin in the Woods with uh, his face and Thor. Oh yeah, yeah. Thor, as we call him. Uh, <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, okay. Let's 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 wrap it up. Uh, thanks everybody for listening. You know the stuff. Uh, hope hope hopefully uh, you enjoyed this. We'll get back to slightly horror horror sometime soon. And uh, yeah, thanks again, Tim. Thanks, Yakov. Uh, yeah, that was fun. Uh, good night, everybody. Yeah.